Chapter One of A Bid for Fortune or Dr. Nicholas Vendetta by Guy Boothby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One I determined to take a holiday, Sydney, and what befell me there. First and foremost, my name, age, description, and occupation, as they say in the Police Gazette, Richard Hatteras, at your service, commonly called Dick, of Thursday Island, North Queensland, Perler, Copper Merchant, Beche de Mer, and Tortoise Shell Dealer, and South Sea Trader generally. Eight and twenty years of age, neither particularly good-looking, nor, if some people are to be believed, particularly amiable. Six feet two in my stockings, and forty-six inches round the chest, strong as a hackadatty wrestler, and perfectly willing at any moment to pay ten pounds sterling to the man who can put me on my back. And big shame to me, if I were not so strong, considering the free open air, devil-may-care life I have led, why I was doing a man's work at an age when most boys are wondering when they're going to be taken out of knickerbockers. I've been half round the world before I was fifteen, and have been wrecked twice, and marooned once before my beard showed signs of sprouting. My father was an Englishman, not very much profit to himself, so he used to say, but of a kindly disposition, and the best husband to my mother during their short married life, that any woman could possibly have desired. She, poor soul, died of fever in the Philippines the year I was born, and he went to the bottom in the schooner Helen of Troy, a degree west of the Lyne Islands, within six months of her decease struck the tail end of a cyclone it was thought and went down lock stock and barrel leaving only one man to tell the tale so i lost father and mother in the same twelve months and that being so when i put my cabbage tree on my head it covered as far as i knew all my family in the world any way you look at it it's calculated to give you a turn fifteen years of age to know that there's not a living soul on the face of God's globe that you could take by the hand and call relation. That old saying about blood being thicker than water is a pretty true one, I reckon. Friends may be kind, they were so to me, but after all they're not the same thing, nor can they be as your own kith and kin. However, I had to look at my trouble in the face, stand up to it as a man should, and I suppose this kept me from brooding over my loss as much as I should otherwise have done. At any rate, ten days after the news reached me, I had shipped aboard the little family trading schooner for Papiti, booked for five years among the islands, where I was to learn to water copra and cook my balances and to lay the foundation of the strange adventures that I am going to tell you about. After my time expired, and I had served my trading company on half the mud banks of the Pacific, I returned to Australia, and went up inside the Great Barrier Reef to Somerset, the pearling station that had just come into existence on Cape York. They were good days there then, before all the new-fangled laws that now regulate the pearling trade had come into force. Days when a man could do almost as he liked among the islands in those seas. I don't know how other folk liked it, but the life just suited me, so much so that when Somerset proved inconvenient, and the settlement shifted across to Thursday, I went with it, and what was more to the point, with money enough at my back to fit myself out with a brand new lugger and a full crew, so that I could go purling on my own account. 
for many years i went at it head down and this brings me up to four years ago when i was a grown man the owner of a house two luggers and as good a diving plant as any man could wish to possess what was more just before this i had put some money into a mining concern on the mainland which had contrary to most ventures of the sort turned up trumps giving me as my share the nice round sum of five thousand pounds with all this wealth at my back and having been in harness for a greater number of years on end than i cared to count i made up my mind to take a holiday and go home to england to see the place where my father was born and had lived his early life i found the name of it written in the fly-leaf of an old latin book he left me to have a look at a country i'd heard so much about but never thought to set my foot upon accordingly i packed my traps let my house sold my luggers and gear intending to buy new ones when i returned and said good-bye to my friends and shipmates and set off to join an orient liner in sydney you will see from this that i intended doing this thing in style and why not i'd got more money to my hand to play with than most of the swells who patronized the first saloon i had earned it honestly and was resolved to enjoy myself with it to the top of my bent i reached sydney a week before the boat was advertised to sail but i didn't fret much about that there's plenty to see and do in such a big place and when a man's been shut away from theatres and amusements for years at a stretch he can put in his time pretty well looking about him all the same not knowing a soul in the place i must confess there were moments when i did think regretfully of the little island hidden away up north under the wing of new guinea of the luggers dancing to the breeze in the harbour and the warm welcome that always awaited me among my friends in the saloons take my word for it there's something in even being a leader on a small island anyway it's better than being a deadbeat in a big city like sydney where nobody knows you and your next-door neighbour wouldn't miss you even if he never saw or heard of you again i used to think of these things as i marched about the streets looking in at shop windows or took excursions up and down the harbour there's no place like sydney harbour in the wide wide world for beauty before i'd been there a week i was familiar with every part of it it would have been more enjoyable as i hinted just now if i had a friend to tour about with me and by the same token i am doing one man an injustice there was one fellow i remember who did offer to show me round i fell across him in a saloon in george street he was tall and handsome and as spick as span as a new pin till he came to look under the surface when he entered the bar he winked at the girl who was serving me and as soon as i'd finished my drink asked me to take another with him seeing what his little game was and wanting to teach him a lesson i lured him on by consenting i drank with him then he drank with me been long in sydney he inquired casually as he stroked his fair moustache just come in was my reply did you find it dull work going about alone he inquired i shall never forget my first week of it you're about right i answered it is dull i don't know a soul bar my banker and lawyer dear me more curling of the moustache if i can be of any service to you while you're here i hope you'll command me i believe we're both englishmen eh? it's very good of you i replied modestly affecting to be overcome by his condescension i'm just off to lunch i'm staying at the quebec it isn't far for a hansom and as he was about to answer a lawyer with whom i had done little business the day before walked into the room i turned to my patronizing friend and said 
excuse me for one moment i want to speak to this gentleman he was all graciousness i'll call a hansom and wait for you in it when he had left the saloon i spoke to the new arrival he had noticed the man i had been talking to and was kind enough to warn me against him that man he said bears a very bad reputation he makes his trade to meet new arrivals from england weak brain young pigeons with money he shows them round sydney and plucks them so clean that when they leave his hands in nine cases out of ten they haven't a feather left to fly with you ought not with your experience of rough customers to be taken in by him nor am i i replied i'm going to teach him a lesson come with me arm in arm we walked into the street watched by mr hawk from his seat in the cab when we got there we stood for a moment chatting and then strolled together down the pavement next moment i heard the cab coming along afterwards and my friend hailing me in his silkiest tones but though i looked him full in the face i pretended not to know him seeing this he drove past us pulled up a little further down and sprang out to wait for me i was almost afraid i had missed you he began as we came up with him perhaps it is such a fine day you would rather walk than ride i beg your pardon i answered i'm really afraid you have the advantage of me but you've just asked me to lunch with you at the quebec you told me to call a hansom pardon me again but you are really mistaken i said i was going to lunch at the quebec and asked you if it was far enough to be worth while taking a hansom this is your hansom not mine if you don't require it any longer i should advise you to pay the man and let him go you are a swindler sir i refuse to pay the cabman it's your hansom i took a step closer to my fine gentleman looking him full in the face said as quietly as possible for i didn't want all the street to hear mr Durunder dodson let this be a lesson to you perhaps you'll think twice next time before you try your little games on me he stepped back as if he'd been shot hesitated a moment then jumped into his cab and drove off in the opposite direction when he had gone i looked at my astonished companion well now he ejaculated at last how on earth did you manage that very easily i replied i happen to remember having met that gentleman up in our part of the world when he was in a very awkward position very awkward by his action just now i should say that he has not forgotten the circumstances any more than i have that was the first of the only two adventures of any importance i met with during my stay in new south wales and there's not much in that i fancy i can hear you saying well that may be so i don't deny it but it was nevertheless through that that i became mixed up with the folk who figure in this book and indeed it was to that very circumstance and that alone i owe my connection with the queer story i have set myself to tell and this is how it came about three days before the steamer sailed and about four o'clock in the afternoon i chanced to be walking down castlereagh street wondering what on earth i should do with myself until dinner-time when i saw approaching me the very man whose discomfiture i have just described being probably occupied planning the plucking of some unfortunate new chum he did not see me and as i had no desire to meet him again after what had passed between us i crossed the road and meandered off in a different direction eventually finding myself located on a seat in the domain lighting a cigarette and looking down over a broad expanse of harbour one thought led to another and so i sat on and on long after dusk had fallen never stirring until a circumstance occurred on a neighbouring path that attracted my attention 
a young and well-dressed lady was pursuing her way in my direction evidently intending to leave the park by the entrance i had used to come into it but unfortunately for her at the junction of the two paths to my right three of sydney's typical larrikins were engaged in earnest conversation they had observed the girl coming towards them and were evidently preparing some plan for accosting her when she was only about fifty yards away two of them walked a distance leaving the third and biggest ruffian to waylay her he did so but without success and she passed him and continued her walk at increased speed the man thereupon quickened his pace and secure in the knowledge that he was unobserved again accosted her again she tried to escape him but this time he would not leave her what was worse his two friends were now blocking the path in front she looked to right and left and was evidently uncertain what to do then seeing that escape was hopeless she stopped took out her purse and gave it to the man who had first spoken to her thinking that this was going too far i jumped up and went quickly across the turf towards them my footsteps made no sound on the soft grass and as they were too much occupied in examining what she had given them they did not notice my approach you scoundrels i said when i had come up with them what do you mean by stopping this lady let her go instantly and you my friend just hand over that purse the man addressed looked at me as if he were taking my measure and were wondering what sort of chance he'd have against me in a fight but i suppose my height must have rather scared him for he changed his tone and began to whine i haven't got the lady's purse so help me i ain't i was only asking her the time hand over that purse i said sternly approaching a step nearer to him one of the others here intervened let's stoach him dog there ain't a copper in sight with that they began to close upon me and as the saying goes i'd been there before i'd not been knocking about the rough side of the world for fifteen years without learning how to take care of myself when they had had about enough of it which was most likely more than they had bargained for i took the purse and went to where the innocent cause of it all was standing she was looking very white and scared but she plucked up sufficient courage to thank me prettily i can see her now standing there looking into my face with big tears in her pretty blue eyes she was a girl of about twenty-one or two years of age tall but slenderly built with a sweet oval face bright brown hair and the most beautiful eyes i have ever seen in my life she was dressed in some dark green material wore a fawn jacket and because the afternoon was cold had a boa of martin fur round her neck i can remember also that her hat was of some flimsy make with lace and glittering spear points in it that the whole structure was surmounted by two bows one of black ribbon the other of salmon pink oh how can i thank you she began when i had come up with her but for your appearance i don't know what those men might not have done to me i was very glad that i was there to help you i replied looking into her face with more admiration for its warm young beauty than perhaps i ought to have shown here is your purse i hope you will find its contents safe at the same time will you let me give you a little piece of advice from what i have seen this afternoon this is evidently not the sort of place for a young lady to be walking in alone and after dark i don't think i would risk it again if i were you she looked at me for a moment and then said you're quite right i have only myself to thank for my misfortune i met a friend and walked across the green with her i was on my way back to my carriage which is waiting for me outside when i met those men however i can promise you that it will not happen again i am leaving sydney in a day or two 
Somehow, when I heard that, I began to feel glad that I was booked to leave the place too. But of course I didn't tell her so. May I see you safely to your carriage, I said at last. Those fellows may still be hanging around on the chance of overtaking you. Her courage must have come back, for she looked up into my face with a smile. I don't think they will be rude to me again after the lesson you have given them. But if you will walk with me, I should be very grateful. Side by side, we proceeded down the path through the gates and out into the street. A neat brougham was drawn up outside the curb was drawn up alongside the curb, and towards this she made her way. I opened the door and held it for her to get in, but before she did so she turned to me and stretched out her little hand. Will you tell me your name, that I may know to whom I am indebted? My name is Hatteras, Richard Hatteras, of Thursday Island, Torres Straits. I am staying at the Quebec. Thank you, Mr. Hatteras, again and again. I shall always be grateful to you for your gallantry. This was attaching too much importance to such a simple action, and I was about to tell her so, when she spoke again. I think I ought to let you know who I am. My name is Wetherell, and my father is the colonial secretary. I am sure he will be quite as grateful to you as I am. Goodbye. She seemed to forget that we had already shaken hands, for she extended her own a second time. I took it and tried to say something polite, but she stepped into her carriage and shut the door before I could think of anything the next moment she is being whirled away up the street. Now old fogies and disappointed spinsters can say what they please about love at first sight. I'm not a romantic sort of person, far from it. The sort of life I had hitherto led was not of a nature calculated to foster belief in that sort of thing. But if I wasn't over head and ears in love when I resumed my walk that evening, I have never known what the passion is. A daintier, prettier, sweeter little angel surely never walked the earth than the girl I had just been permitted the opportunity of rescuing. And from that moment forward, I found my thoughts constantly reverting to her. I seemed to retain the soft pressure of her fingers in mine for hours afterwards. And as proof of the perturbed state of my feelings, I may add that I congratulated myself warmly on having worn that day my new and fashionable Sydney suit instead of the garments in which I had travelled down from Torres Straits, and which I had hitherto considered quite good enough for even high days and holidays, that she herself would remember me for more than an hour never struck me as being likely. Next morning I donned my best suit again, gave myself an extra brush-up, and sauntered downtown to see if I could run across her in the streets. What reason I had for thinking I should is more than I can tell you, but at any rate I was not destined to be disappointed. Crossing George Street, a carriage passed me, and in it sat the girl whose fair image had exercised such an effect upon my mind. That she saw and recognised me was evidenced by the gracious bow and smile with which she favoured me. Then she passed out of sight, and it was a wonder that that minute didn't see the end of my career, for I stood like one in a dream looking at the direction which she had gone and it was not until two carts and a brewer's wagon had nearly run me down that I realised it would be safer for me to pursue my meditations on the sidewalk. I got back to my hotel by lunchtime, and during the progress of that meal a brilliant idea struck me. Supposing I plucked up the courage and called, why not? It would only be a polite action to inquire if she were any the worse for her fright. The thought was no sooner born in my brain than I was eager to be off. But it was too early for such a formal business, 
so i had to cool my heels in the hall for an hour then hailing a hansom and inquiring the direction of their residence i drove off to potts point the house was the last in the street an imposing mansion standing in a well laid out grounds the butler answered my ring and in response to my inquiry dashed my hopes to the ground by informing me that miss wetherell was out she's very busy you see at present sir she and the master leave for england on friday in the orizaba what i cried almost forgetting myself in my astonishment you don't say that miss wetherell goes to england in the orizaba i do sir and i do hear she's going home to be presented at court sir ah thank you will you give her my card and say that i hope she is none the worse for her fright last evening he took the card and a substantial tip with it and i went back to my cab in the seventh heaven of delight i was to be shipmates with this lovely creature for four weeks or more i should be able to see her every day it seemed almost too good to be true instinctively i began to make all sorts of plans and preparations who knew but what but stay we must bring ourselves up here with a round turn or we should be anticipating what's to come to make a long story short for it must be remembered that what i am telling you is only the prelude to all the extraordinary things that will have to be told later on the day of sailing came i went down to the boat on the morning of her departure and got my baggage safely stowed away in my cabin before the rush set in about three o'clock we hove our anchor and steamed slowly down the bay i had been below when the wetherells arrived on board so the young lady had not yet become aware of my presence whether she would betray any astonishment when she did find out was beyond my power to tell at any rate i know that i was by a long way the happiest man aboard the boat that day however i was not to be kept long in suspense before we had reached the heads it was all settled and satisfactory so i was standing on the promenade deck just abaft of the main saloon entrance watching the panorama spread out before me when i heard a voice i recognised only too well say behind me good-bye to you dear old sydney great things will have happened when i set eyes on you again little did she know how prophetic were her words as she spoke i turned and confronted her for a moment she was overwhelmed with surprise then stretching out her hand she said really mr hatteras this is most wonderful you are the last person i expected to meet on board and perhaps i replied i might with justice say the same of you she turned to a tall white-bearded man beside her papa i must introduce you to mr hatteras you will remember i told you how kind mr hatteras was when those larrikins were rude to me in the domain i am sincerely obliged to you mr hatteras he said holding out his hand and shaking mine heartily my daughter did tell me and i called yesterday at your hotel to thank you personally but you are unfortunately not at home are you visiting europe yes i am going for a short visit to see the place where my father was born are you then like myself an australian native i mean of course as you know colonial born asked miss wetherell with a little laugh the idea of calling herself an australian native in any other sense the very notion seemed preposterous i was born at sea a degree and a half south of mauritius i answered so i don't know what you would call me i hope you have comfortable cabins very we have made two or three voyages in this boat before and we always take the same places and now papa we must really go and see where poor miss thompson is we are beginning to feel the swell and she'll be wanting to go below good-bye for the present 
I raise my cap and watch her walk away down the deck, balancing herself as if she had been accustomed to a heaving plank all her life. Then I turn to watch the fast receding shore and to my own thoughts, which were none of the saddest, I can assure you. For it must be confessed here, and why should I deny it, that I was in love from the soles of my deck shoes to the cap upon my head. But as to the chance that I, a humble pearler, would stand with one of Sydney's most beautiful daughters, why, that's another matter, and one that for the present I was anxious to keep behind me. Within a week we had left Adelaide behind us, and four days later Albany was also a thing of the past. By the time we had cleared the Lewin, we had all settled down to our life aboard ship. The bad sailors were beginning to appear on deck again, and the medium voyagers to make various excuses from their absences from meals. One thing was evident, that Miss Wetherell was the belle of the ship. Everybody paid her attention, from the skipper down to the humblest deckhand. And this being so, I prudently kept out of the way, for I had no desire to be thought of to presume on our previous acquaintance. Whether she noticed this I cannot tell, but at any rate her manner to me, when we did speak, was more cordial than I had any right or reason to expect it would be. Seeing this, there were not wanting people on board who scoffed and sneered at the idea of the colonial secretary's daughter noticing so humble a person as myself. And when it became known what my exact social position was, I promise you these malicious whisperings did not cease. One evening, two or three days after we had left Colombo behind us, I was standing at the rails on the promenade deck, a little abaft of the smoking-room entrance, when Miss Wetherell came up and took her place beside me. She looked very dainty and sweet in her evening dress, and I felt, if I had known her better, I should have liked to tell her so. Mr. Hatteras, said she, when we had discussed the weather and the sunset, I have been thinking lately that you desire to avoid me. Heaven forbid, Miss Wetherell, I hastened to reply. What on earth put such a notion into your head? All the same, I believe it to be true. Now, why do you do it? I have not admitted that I do do it, but perhaps if I do deem to deny myself the pleasure of being with you as much as some other people I could mention, it is only because I failed to see what possible enjoyment you can derive from my society. And it's a very pretty speech, she answered, smiling, but does not tell me what I want to know. And what is it that you want to know, my dear young lady? I want to know why you are so much changed towards me. First we got on splendidly. You used to tell me of your life on Torres Straits, of your trading ventures in the southern seas, and even of your hopes for the future. Now, however, all that is changed. It is good morning, Miss Wetherell, good evening, Miss Wetherell, and that is all. I must own I don't like such treatment. I must crave your pardon, but no, we won't have any buts. If you want to be forgiven, you must come and talk to me as you used to do. You will like the rest of the people, I'm sure, when you get to know them. They're very kind to me. And you think I shall like them for that reason? No, no, how silly you are. But I do so want you to be friendly. After that, there was nothing for it but for me to push myself into a circle where I had the best reasons for knowing that I was not wanted. However, it had its good side. I saw more of Miss Wetherell, so much more indeed that I began to notice that her father did not quite approve of it, but, whatever he may have thought, he said nothing to me on the subject. A fortnight or so later we were at Aden, leaving that barren rock about four o'clock, and entering the Red Sea the same evening, 
the suez canal passed through and port said behind us we were in the mediterranean and for the first time in my life i stood in europe at naples the wethels were to say good-bye to the boat and continue the rest of their journey home across the continent as the hour of separation approached i must confess i began to dread it more and more and somehow i fancy she was not quite as happy as she used to be you'll probably ask what grounds i had for believing that a girl like miss wetherell would take any interest in a man like myself and it is a question i can no more answer than i can fly and yet when i came to think it all out i was not without my hopes we were to reach port the following morning the night was very still the water almost unruffled somehow it came about that miss wetherell and i found ourselves together in the same sheltered spot where she had spoken to me on the occasion referred to before the stars in the east were paling proprietary to the rising of the moon i glanced at my companion and she leant against the rails scanning the quiet sea and noticed the sweet wistfulness of her expression and suddenly a great desire came over me to tell her of my love surely even if she could not return it there would be no harm in letting her know how i felt towards her for this reason i drew a little closer to her and so miss wetherell i said to-morrow we are to say good-bye never perhaps to meet again oh no mr hatteras she answered we won't say that surely we shall see something of each other somewhere the world is very tiny after all to those who desire to avoid each other perhaps but for those who wish to find it is still too large well then we must hope for the best who knows but that we may run across each other in london i think it is very probable and will that meeting be altogether distasteful to you i asked quite expecting that she would answer with her usual frankness but to my surprise she did not speak only turned half way from me had i offended her miss wetherell pray forgive my rudeness i said hastily i ought to have known that i had no right to ask you such a question and why shouldn't you she replied this time turning her sweet face towards me no i will tell you frankly i should very much like to see you again with that all the blood in my body seemed to rush to my head could i be dreaming or had she really said she would like to see me again i would try my luck now whatever came of it you cannot think how pleasant our intercourse has been to me i said and now i have to go back to my lonely miserable existence again but you should not say that you have your work in life yes but what is that to me when i have no one to work for can you conceive anything more awful than my loneliness remember as far as i know i am absolutely without kith and kin there is not a single soul to care for me in the whole world not one to whom my death would be a matter of the least concern oh don't say that her voice faltered so that i turned from the sea and contemplated her it's true miss wetherell bitterly true it's not true it cannot be true if only i could think it would be some little matter of concern to you i should go back to my work with a happier heart again she turned her face from me my arm lay beside hers upon the bullocks and i could feel that she was trembling brutal though it may seem to say so this gave me fresh courage i said slowly bending my face a little towards her would it affect you phyllis one little hand fell from the bullocks to her side and i took possession of it she did not appear to have heard my question so i repeated it then her head went down upon the bullocks but not before i had caught the whispered yes that escaped her lips 
before she could guess what was going to happen i had taken her in my arms and smothered her face with kisses nor did she offer any resistance i knew the whole truth now she was mine she loved me 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 the whole world seemed to re-echo the news the very sea to ring with it and just as i learned from her own dear lips the story of her love the great moon rose as if to listen can you imagine my happiness my delight she was mine this lovely girl my very own bound to me by all the bonds of love oh happy hour oh sweet delight i pressed her to my heart again and again she looked into my face and then away from me her sweet eyes suffused with tears then suddenly her expression changed i turned to see what ailed her and to my discomfiture discovered her father stalking along the silent deck towards us whispering to her to leave us she sped away and i was left alone with her angry parent that he was angry i judged from his face nor was i wrong in my conjecture mr hatteras he said severely pray what does this mean how is it that i find you in this undignified position with my daughter mr wetherell i answered i can see that an explanation is due to you just before you came up i was courageous enough to tell your daughter that i loved her she has been generous enough to inform me that she returns my affection and now the best course for me to pursue is to ask your permission to make her my wife you presume sir upon the service you rendered my daughter in sydney i did not think you would follow it up in this fashion your daughter is free to love whom she pleases i take it i said my temper getting the little better of my judgment she has been good enough to promise to marry me if i can obtain your permission have you any objection to raise only one and that one is insuperable understand me i forbid it once and for all in every particular without hope of change i forbid it as you must see it is a matter which affects the happiness of two lives i feel sure you will be good enough to tell me your reasons i must decline any discussion on the matter at all you have my answer i forbid it this is to be final then i am to understand that you are not to be brought to change your mind by any actions of mine no sir i am not what i have said is irrevocable the idea is not to be thought of for a moment and while i am on this subject let me tell you that your conduct towards my daughter on board this ship has been very distasteful to me i have the honour to wish you a very good evening stay mr wetherell i said as he turned to go you have been kind enough to favour me with your views now i will give you mine your daughter loves me i am an honest and industrious man and i love her with my whole heart and soul i tell you now and though you decline to treat me with proper fairness i give you warning that i intend to marry her if she will still have me with your consent or without it you are insolent sir i assure you i have no desire to be i endeavour to remember that you are her father though i must own you lack a sense of what is fair and right i will not discuss the question any further with you you know my absolute decision good night with anger and happiness struggling in my breast for the mastery i paced that deck for hours my heart swelled with joy at the knowledge that my darling loved me but it sank like lead when i considered the difficulties which threatened us if her father persisted in his present determination at last just as eight bells were striking twelve o'clock i went below to my cabin my fellow passenger was fast asleep a fact which i was grateful for when i discovered propped up against my bottle rack a tiny envelope with my name on it tearing it open i read the following 
my own dearest my father has just informed me of his interview with you i cannot understand or ascribe a reason for it but whatever happens remember that i will be your wife and the wife of no other may god bless and keep you always your own phyllis p s before we leave the ship you must let me know your address in london with such a letter under my pillow can it be doubted that my dreams were good little i guessed the accumulation of troubles to which this little unpleasantness with mr wetherell was destined to be the prelude End of chapter one